that and wonderful thoughts and guiding our minds in what we're about to go into. We do want to say a welcome to you again. Thanks for being here today on this, the first Lord's Day of the new year. Uh, some of you may have seen that uh, I was asked to change the sign up here. Uh, some of you might have been one of those people who said, that's bothering me the whole service. Why does it say 2023? But uh, sweet Brenda Kelch raised her hand after class and said, I have a request. She said, can somebody please change that sign to say 2024? And I said, I can do that. That's Faith's fault. She didn't do that ahead of time. And Faith said she's not responsible for the sign. So, But no, we're thankful that you are here in this first Lord's Day of the new year and uh, our opportunity to encourage ourselves. I, I do not want to miss a chance as well to pick on Lance. Um, as was said, you know, whether or not Lance was here, Lance is here. Lance is the monitor, though, so I don't know after his cardio version if he's ready to chase somebody in the parking lot or, you know, lock the doors or be on guard, but he is here, uh, and we're thankful that his procedure went well. And some of you may have expected me to stand up here this morning and to preach about mice, um, but I'm not going to do that. If you are not on social media, you don't get that, um, but Friday night, my dear wife and I had a date night, and we sat on an uh, open patio that was enclosed with plastic and, of course, warm heaters, only that there was a small mouse that was also wanting to get into those warm heaters. Uh, and so then the rest of the date involved me trying to coax Hannah out of the chair that she was standing in, uh, and then involved us going inside to finish our meal, and it was quite the adventure as sometimes those things uh, go. I do think, I did confirm, I do think that Leviticus 11 says that mice are part of the unclean animals of the Old Testament, but I'm not going to prepare a whole sermon about mice for you this morning. So uh, we do appreciate Brian leading us in his uh, prayer, thoughtful prayer. Uh, Don, not stepping on too much of my material, but doing an excellent job in his preparation and thinking about the Lord's Supper. And of course, as we said, uh, have said Charles in his thoughts and leading us in our singing and thoughtfulness and picking out songs. Um, going right into the lesson with that, that beautiful song we sang just a moment ago. We will be jumping around between the gospel accounts this morning, but if you have a Bible handy, uh, you might want to start in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. It should be the goal of every person in this room today, and really for every person who will live or every person who is alive, to live a life that is in the shape of the cross to be conformed to the image of God's dear Son. As preachers, we often say that the Bible is all about Jesus. The Old Testament is, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. The gospel accounts are about, he has come, he is here. And of course, the rest of the New Testament is about, he is coming again. It is all about Jesus we may not celebrate his birth around the same holiday that many others do. We may not celebrate his resurrection the way that some others do. But may it never be said that we do not realize the importance of making our lives in the shape of his life. Last week we talked about one of the events leading up to the death of Jesus on the cross. We looked at the situation in which Barabbas was exchanged, if you will, for Jesus and there are so many things during that last week of his life that are worthy of our consideration. But may we always connect with Barabbas in a way that we understand and that we mean it when we sing that song, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a savior. 
It wasn't meant to be a series or anything like that, but this morning I would like for us to continue moving through some of the end of Jesus' life and even beyond. The New King James has a heading, if you have a New King James in front of you, in almost all the synoptic gospels around Matthew 27 and Mark's account and Luke's account that say, the king on the cross. That struck me, and I was thinking about that, and I couldn't help but think about the king on the cross, but even with that, there are still several stages, or as our title says this morning, several scenes that are remaining for this king. Let's think about three together this morning. First of all, the king on the tree. We sort of concluded last week with at least the thought of Barabbas being released back into the crowd. And while he is trying to figure out what is going on, trying to understand how he's gone from certain crucifixion to being released among the people, there is this other man who's being led away to to be crucified. Luke actually goes almost straight from Barabbas to Calvary. Matthew and Mark, though, both record for us the part where the soldiers strip him, put the scarlet robe on him, the crown of thorns. They spit on him, they strike him with a reed, and they mock him. Hail, King of the Jews. In a world today that is so concerned with torture, and, and torture techniques, and, and rightfully so, I, I might add, this is torture. There, there is no straight to execution. There is no, this is no quick thing, but they are humiliating him, adding to his agony. Simon the Cyrenian is compelled to bear the cross and carry it to the place of the skull, Golgotha. And Matthew chapter 27 and verse 35 begins with the haunting phrase, Then they crucified him. I've shared with you before about the woman who once left during the middle of the sermon when I was preaching on the cross and the horrors of the crucifixion. And I have said I never blame her because some people struggle listening to those things. If you've ever seen the passion of the Christ, maybe you averted your eyes from some of those moments of agony. Matthew goes on to record in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 36 that they sat down and kept watch over him. You don't sit and you don't have to keep watch if this is a short affair. Verse 39 says that those who passed by blasphemed him. There is not usually a need to record people, multiple people, passing by if it's something that's over in you know less than 20 minutes or so and finally in verse 45 the bible says now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour above his head is the mocking sign that says this is jesus of nazareth king of the jews you see he is a king he is the king on the tree in this moment There is almost incessant mocking. There are what we sometimes refer to as Jesus' seven sayings from the cross. And then there's one final cry with a loud voice as he breathed his last, as he yielded up his spirit. But if you've ever studied this before, you know that the action wasn't near over, right? Matthew again says in chapter 27 in verse 51 that the earth quaked. Rocks split open. Graves were opened. 
I've never stood or been a part of an earthquake. I can imagine the terror that you feel when you think the earth is going to open up and swallow you. The action wasn't near over, even though as he screams and cries out and gives up his spirit, the earthquake happens. Luke says in chapter 23 and verse 45 that the veil of the temple was torn in two. With the addition that the other two synoptics add that it was from the top to the bottom. Now, I'm, I meant to sort of come in maybe and try to measure, but history records for us that the veil would have been about 20 feet wide and about 60 feet tall and maybe was as thick as a hand's width. This is not linen. This is not cotton. This is not something thin. This is heavy material torn in half. It's 3 p.m. when Jesus dies and the priest would have more than likely been in the holy place performing their duties. Can you imagine their astonishment at this veil being ripped? And Mark says in chapter 15 of Mark and verse 39 that all of this, all of this action, of course, what's taken place in the preceding hours, but certainly in that moment, all of this causes a Roman centurion to have belief. And not only that, but to comment and say, truly this man was the Son of God. I can't remember now if it was Mark or Luke or maybe even John that records that that Roman centurion glorified God, understanding what was happening. The king on the tree is one of the greatest scenes in all of history, but it was not the final scene of the king. Again, as we record from script, see from Scripture and recorded for us, he would have been crucified at about 9 a.m. He would have died at about 3 p.m. And before the sun goes down, we find our next scene, and that is the king in the tomb. He goes from the king who is, of course, going around the countryside and doing good works and healing people and preaching to the king on the tree to now the king in the tomb. I don't like to think about the crucifixion as Don even made mention of. We don't want to get into gory details and those kinds of things. But sometimes thinking about that horror helps us to then think about what might have come about as the king is going to enter the tomb or be put in the tomb. After hour upon hour of terror and horror, even back to the night before, the grief and the sorrow in the garden, the agony and the pain, the suffering and the loss, there is this second scene of the tomb. And can I suggest to you that, first of all, I think there was probably peace. In one sense, peace comes at last. Again, there have been chants. We said it last week. Crucify him. Crucify him. There have been shouts. There have been agony. There has been crying out. There has been weeping by his family and his mother, and with all of that, the weeping and the crying fades as noise into the distance. And there's now quiet. I think it's fair to say that even though the Son of God has been crucified, there is a peace about the land. Not peace in the absence of violence or the, the peace in the idea of the absence of conflict. When we talk about peace in the Middle East, what do we mean? We mean no conflict, no more fighting or violence. Because the devil is still at work, I don't know that there is truly peace in that kind of sense. He has won the victory. Sure, the Son of God has been crucified, but there's still work to be done. But I think about there being a peace 
in the sense of stillness. Peace in the sense of a lack of activity. Mark records in Mark chapter 15 and verse 43 that Joseph of Arimathea had to take courage, right? I mean, it's not like an easy thing to do. This has probably been a number one on the list of criminals. And, and all, again, imagine all the horror that's been going on. Joseph of Arimathea has to take some courage. But he does so and he goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. When Pilate finds out that he has been dead for some time, he granted the body to Joseph. I can just imagine that especially in that moment, you know, a lot of us have been enjoying these football games that have been going on. And, and if you watch, sometimes after those games are over and the news reporters are still there in the stadium or whatever, there's been yells, cheers, bands, celebration, confetti, and all this. And yet there's this calmness now in the stadium as everyone is starting to leave. I think there was some sense of peace in that moment. Not that all is done, but there is some stillness. And so after Joseph asked for the body, next comes preparation. Of course, with Joseph of Arimathea, there is the preparation of his body. Most people know Joseph of Arimathea, that name, but John records for us another man. In our auditorium class on Wednesday nights, we have started studying the book of John. If you would be with us this coming Wednesday night, we are going to study John chapter 3. Of course, John chapter 3 is known to the world for the golden text of the Bible. John chapter 3 at verse 16. But it may be that good Bible students know that, and they realize that John chapter 3 is really centered around Nicodemus. And here we are, 16 chapters later, and we meet Nicodemus again as he joins himself with Joseph and together they prepare the body of Jesus for burial in the tomb. There's a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds of those spices, strips of linen with spices, fragrant oils, fine linens, clean linen cloth, and a tomb, hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. But we also see, as we come to Matthew's account, not only is there preparation of the body, but there's also preparation of the soldiers. Do you remember that Matthew records for us in Matthew 27, verses 62 through 66, how Jesus' enemies were not done? Even though they won and he's dead, the following day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gain an audience with Pilate. And they remind him that this man, who they refer to here as a deceiver, said he said they said we remember he said he was going to rise again in three days what's going to happen Pilate? is his disciples are going to come and carry his body away and then we're going to be left with a win for them what can we do can we set up a guard they ask for a guard to be put at jesus's tomb so that his disciples cannot come and steal his body and then claim that he is risen because they admit in that moment there that this would be worse than the miracles they say this, the last deception will be worse than the first. So they went, they made the tomb secure, they sealed the stone, and they set the guard. Think of this preparation. The men who are preparing the body are doing so because they ex expect that the corpse will rot in the grave, right? They're not thinking about the resurrection that's about to take place. The soldiers who are preparing. They're doing all humanly possible to be sure no tricks could be pulled. 
not understanding that the power of God is far beyond any military might of man. But then thirdly, we see with the king in the tomb this idea of perplexity. I know that's not a way that we don't normally use that word, but I am a preacher and we have to stick with all P words, so there you go. But, stay with me, it is from Scripture. We're still considering the king in the tomb, and the perplexity comes about, of course, because of what? The king is no longer in the tomb. It's Luke. At least in the New King James Version, Luke chapter 24 in verse 2, who says it this way. They, rolled, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. As it happened, as they were greatly perplexed. As they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments, saying to, uh, shining garments to say, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. And it is perplexing to us, right? Because there is confusion. We just saw him dead, they're saying. We just saw his body hanging lifeless on the tree. What do you mean he's not here? And even in this section of scripture, when you take into account all four of the gospel's account, there's a race. There's a running race between Peter and John. And John is faster and outruns Peter to the tomb to see for themselves. And in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, there are two disciples who are walking, and Jesus appears to them, but they don't recognize him. And Mark 16, in verse number 8, says that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome all tremble and were amazed. There is perplexity, but it's of the good kind, for he is not here, but is risen. Or as those two men said in Luke chapter 24 and verse 6, remember, remember how he told you he would be crucified and would rise on the third day. Now from this scene, the end of the scene here, the king in the tomb, to our next scene, there's about 40 days. Luke records that for us in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 3. So we know that from the king on the tree to the king in the tomb, there is about the six hours on the cross, and then he's, he's in the tomb by sundown. We know that there are three days, and he rises again. But from the time that he rises, he, the perplexity sets in, he's no longer there until our third scene. Luke says there were 40 days. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 6, that he was seen by over 500 people at once after he rose from the dead. But I want to skip through those 40 days as as quickly as we can here to say that our final scene for this morning is the king on the throne. Because the resurrection is great, but the final scene here for us this morning is the king on the throne. In Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 11, here Luke gives us the historical recording almost a play-by-play of how Jesus is gathered with his disciples. He gives them the instructions to remain in Jerusalem until they receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, which we see, of course, take place in Acts chapter 2, the great events there. But Acts chapter 1 and verse 9 says that when he was done speaking those things, while they watched, he was taken up in a cloud 
and, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Some of the other epistles record the same thing, but it's not so much history, but it is stated as fact. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. The son, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, that God's mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but that which is to come. There are two other things I want us to notice here about Jesus on his throne. Number one, he is able to intercede on our behalf. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 through 28. The Hebrew writer says that because Jesus is the better high priest, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests offer up sacrifices First for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He ascended. He sits on the throne so that he can intercede on our behalf. But let me ask you secondly to turn back to Mark. This time Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. The very end of Mark's account and what I'd like for us to notice secondly here under the idea of the king on his throne is that he is there and we are here and we are to be working. Notice that Mark records the same thing. Mark says, so then after the Lord had spoken to, spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. We could have stopped there, but notice verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere. Now, I don't want to be accused of taking things out of context, so notice that he does say there that they went out and were preaching everywhere, and the Lord was working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. In the context here, they are going about and preaching everywhere after Jesus has ascended with miraculous power that they had received. We can't do those same miracles today, we don't have that same miraculous power, but we can and should keep preaching. How can we keep preaching? Why can we keep preaching? Because the king is on the throne. Because he did not stay in the tomb. Because the suffering on the tree was horrible, but none of those first two things are the final scene. He didn't stay in the tomb. He rose and ascended to be with the Father. He intercedes on our behalf, and we can preach the good news of the final scenes of the king and all of his life to the world. The final scenes of the king were not the end. There was and is work to be done, and followers of Jesus must be about his business. You know, Paul writes to the young preacher Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15 that Jesus 
Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. To study these last days and hours of the life of Jesus should be encouragement to us. And as we began this lesson, we said that let us remember that our lives must be cross-shaped. No matter what happens in life, we must serve him. Paul would also go on to say in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. It is only in Christ that all spiritual blessings are found. If you are not in Christ this morning, why not be baptized with him into his death so that you can walk in newness of life? Why not make the greatest commitment a person can make in this lifetime? Why not become a Christian, having your sins washed away by the blood of Christ so that the Lord can add you to his church? We've usually put this slide on the screen at the end of our lessons to encourage people to think about what it means to become a Christian. The verses are sort of up there very quickly, and sometimes it's hard to, to take it all in. But we always try to remind you that we would study with you as soon as possible to help you understand what God says about his plan of salvation. There may be some in the audience this morning, though, who have done that in times past, but have walked away from Christ. We also see that awful picture in Scripture that's found in John chapter 6, where John says that some of Jesus' disciples turned away from him, and walked with him no more. If you're a Christian this morning, but sin is separating you from God, why not come back to him? Why not repent of your sins, confess them to God, and pray for forgiveness? God, in his mercy and his love, has made a way for you and for me, even now as we stand together and as we sing.